let's get going. Uh, I'm Ian Gordon, it's my pleasure to introduce Matthew Oakley from, uh, from the Treasury not that long ago. Via uh, Policy Exchange, which always comes up to me as sort of thousand and one nights image of new policies for old, um, which I guess is part of the message of this. I don't know whether you actually get trade-ins of things from the present government. Um, it's a sort of inside right of the think tanks, I think, probably. Reference to centre forward, our old positions. Um, Matthew was one of a joint author of the report with this title, which came out last September. I think most of the coverage it got was probably focused, rightly or wrongly, on the north and west uh, and the implications of this for depressed regions. Uh, the advert today said London perspective, and there clearly are strong London implications from this logic, um, which doubtless get picked up in discussion, if not in the Sure. Okay, so thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm kind of pitching this to a quite a broad audience, so I'm happy to be interrupted if there's kind of things anybody wants to pick up on in particular as I go through. Uh, just shout at me. So, for those who don't know Policy Exchange, we're a think tank based in Westminster. Um, we do basically try and influence government policy to make everyone's lives better, is that kind of strap line, I guess. Um, through a whole host of means, often localist, often free market, uh, where it works. So that's the kind of context which you should kind of view this in. And say, so please interrupt as I go along. So, uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's PX Economics, and you can find uh, the links to these two reports. Uh, one, a policy-based report, which I'll probably focus on most today, and another, which is more technical for any kind of geeky economists out there who want to follow the detail of it, then that's the one on the right. Um, so, I'll be sending these around afterwards as well, so do click on the links. So, what, we're gonna, what I'm going to cover, uh, first of all, why public sector pay matters. Um, secondly, a bit about how public sector pay is currently set and how it compares to the private sector. Um, then, basically, that will tell you that national pay bargaining in the public sector, which is basically a nurse or a teacher, the same kind of standard, same kind of... Uh, uh, level gets paid the same pretty much no matter where they are in the country. National pay bargaining exists and this leads to quite large uh, differentials between pay in the public sector and pay in, in the private sector. Then go on to explain a bit about why I think the pay differentials matter in both in terms of productivity and performance of the public sector and the resulting uh, public services they provide and then also about local growth and how uh, local economies function. Then outline in quite brief form because it's quite complicated how we think the system would work better. So why does public sector pay matter? Um, it's probably quite obvious that public sector pay is quite a big element of the economy. 180 billion pounds each year, 12.3% uh, of GDP. So this is, you know, it's a big chunky thing which matters for a whole bunch of reasons. I think a couple of reasons here. First of all, you know, given it's such a large large element of the, of the economy, any business would ask, is this, are we paying people in a way which maximises producti uh, productivity? Are we making the most of the money that we're spending on this? And this is both, as I say, about uh, fairness for the taxpayer, but also just about saying, are we driving performance and driving the kind of quality of services we want? <coughs> and then secondly, obviously being um, you know, quite a big part of the economy has a, a real implication for where you put that money. 
obviously there's been an effort in the last I'd say, 10 or 15 years to relocate certain parts of the public sector to different parts of the country. So moving uh, parts of Whitehall, parts of the civil service in, into Wales, into the northeast, into the northwest, in, attempt, in, in an attempt to try and rebalance the economy and help parts of the country who have uh, traditionally been struggling to do better. Then the question, well, what impact does that have on the private sector in those areas? If you're shifting a large part of the public sector into the northeast and northwest and Wales, what impact does that have on, on the supply, labour markets, on uh, product <coughs> markets, on all the different markets in those areas, and how does that impact on the private sector? And just to see kind of the, the extent of some of these, uh, the extent of some of these regional policies, we can just look at, um, ignore the, the num figures numbers here that here I've copied and pasted from the report. Um, we can just look at the extent to which uh, public sector employment as a total of all employment varies across different local authorities. You can see from the uh, left-hand side, it's, you know, the lowest level is around 10% of total employment. All the way up to the right-hand side, we're talking more like 40-45%. So it really is quite a big uh, part of employment in some parts of the country. Uh, you'll see kind of on the right-hand side here, it's kind of Wales, uh, the north, particularly Wales actually. Uh, northeast, north, northwest is kind of more and kind of down here, and then Kensington and, Kensington and Chelsea, all the way over on the left, where there's pretty much well, the lowest level of public sector employment in, in the country. <coughs> so how is, how is uh, public sector pay currently set? I guess if you looked at it, and we looked at, we looked at this quite closely, it looks quite complicated. Um, there's whole sorts of different structures within different um, bodies. Local authorities have a certain amount of, of, of autonomy. Uh, some parts of the uh, teaching <coughs> profession have uh, autonomy, so academy schools are notionally allowed to set their own pay. Some of it's localised, some of it's nationalised. Uh, the pay review bodies are in charge of different aspects of teachers' pay, uh, uh, different uh, public sector uh, pay. But once you kind of get down underneath what it looks like from the top, actually the nuts and bolts is that it's still a centrally negotiated, uh, collectively bargained settlement across pretty much all, all of the country for the different workforces. That means there's very little reliance on performance and still a relatively low amount of geographic variation in pay. Um, one of the charts I didn't put in here is just showing how within a certain, um, a certain sector and how within certain uh, qualification levels the variance of pay is much, much greater in the private sector than it is in the public sector. And that just shows that, um, it just shows that you know, basically, the pay is set across the board, across the board in the public sector. Whether you're in London, actually not London, London's a bad example because you often have um, a local, a, the London Waiting, which actually bumps up London pay a little bit. But Luton and Liverpool, for instance, would have broadly the same rate of pay for teachers, nurses, other public sector workers. Now, a lot, a lot of the criticism that we had on our analysis in the report, and a lot of the argument you hear from trade unions in particular, is that actually. The public sector is just reflecting how uh, large private sector organisations set their pay. So I'm just going to talk a bit about actually whether this is true and actually whether public sector and private sector pay does seem to be set in the same way. Here this is um, at what level, a question of what level uh, the organisations set pay. Um, it's a report by Unison and Income Data Services. And you see here that in the private sector here you've got some like 30%-ish, 25-30% of organisations setting pay based on a zonal system. So this is quite a much more uh, granularised system than the national system, which is based on, well, 
the highest, the highest level of the public sector just there, which is uh, national plus London. So it, it is quite different on that, on that circumstance, certainly. And also, if you think about the proportion of the private sector, which is taken up by small and medium sized enterprises, something like 50% have uh, relatively low actually, numbers of employees. And of course, for these firms, pay setting is local by default. You, know, you, 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 don't have, you don't have more than one site. You basically look at what you can pay your workers based on local labor market conditions. And that means that all of their pay is local. The next, the next factor looking at um, differences is the proportion of um, employers who, who look at, who, uh, who rely on uh, collective bargaining. It's probably pretty obvious here that you've got the public services, public sector, 40%-ish are reporting and they rely on, on collective bargaining compared to more like 2-3% in the private sector. And this is just reflecting the fact that a huge, uh, far greater union density in the public sector as compared to the private sector. So, you know, again, it doesn't look so similar between the private and the public sector. Matthew, is that, um, when you say public services, that's publicly owned or public, I mean, for example, the bus companies? Uh, it'd be public, bus public, companies. public sector. It's a type of. So it says public sector. Yeah, it is. It is should be public sector. Yeah. Next one about how, at what kind of level wages are set at? Is it individual? Is it based on a, a structure which is set out for uh, for people? And again, you see in the private sector here, you've got forty percentish using completely individualised pay rates, whereas in the public sector here, you've got sixty seventy percent relying on pay spines. That's a rigidly negotiated structure of pay which says you start here and you progress up each year, essentially. So it's that kind of quite rigid structure within which they're working. So again, very, very large differences between the public and private sector. Um, now, now looking a bit at uh, basis for pay progression and the availability of bonus schemes. Um, just cut this chart in two, these don't relate. So this one here is looking at uh, whether organisations offer bonuses or not. The private sector, something like 80% of firms offer bonuses, compared to more like 30, 40% in the public sector. Then, again, huge difference here between what actually determines uh, that bonus or that progression. In the public sector, predominantly, it's length of service. So just staying in, in post one more year means you've got a, a progression. Whereas in the private sector, you're talking you know, 75% of progression is, is determined by individual performance. So I'd argue actually pay in the public and private sector isn't, uh, pay setting in the public and private sector isn't really at all alike. Uh, compared to the private sector, uh, public sector pay is determined more through collective agreements, much more at a national level, uh, much more within stringent structures, so the pay spines, and with far less regard to performance. So progression is usually through length of service rather than, uh, rather than performance or, or, or how people are, are delivering the services. And if you then look at how people think pay in the public sector should be determined, it's quite interesting comparing the red lines which are uh, the public sector's own uh, views of how they think their pay should be set, and the, the grey lines are the are private, sectors, uh, private sector. So at the top you've got um, the public sector workers saying, 55% of them saying that it, it should be linked to uh, inflation or the cost of living. Sorry, can I ask you where, you, where these figures come So these are all, actually sorry, they should be. It's the CIPD uh, Reward Management Annual Survey, uh, also in the report. 
So 55% of um, public sector workers think they should be linked to inflation or the cost of living, which I'll come back to later. It's quite interesting given that the cost of living varies so much across the a country. Um, whereas 55% of the private sector say that the public sector pay should be based on, on how, well the, how, well the, how well either they perform or how well their organisation performs. So again, it doesn't seem that the actual, actual way, in, in, way in which public sector pay is determined actually reflects people's opinions necessarily of how it should be uh, set. So can I ask, can I ask, is there any equivalent um, asking the private sector how they think they should be rewarded, perhaps how private, public sector thinks they should be rewarded, um, sort of reverse? Yes, you, um, that's the one chart I cut, I'm afraid. Um, right unfortunately. Um, so I thought it, it basically matches up this too closely. So the grey lines are the, are the same for the private sector, how the private sector think the private sector should be paid, and these lines are the same for the, how the public sector think the private sector should be paid. So the graphs are just really, really similar. Well, can I ask, um, I'm not sure where the, how the figures are adding up? Or they, you, can, you can respond more than once. So you can say, well, which of these elements do you think sh your pay should be reflected? So you might say, um, it should be based on cost of inflation and uh, how long I've I spent with my employee, employer. So what is the percentage, percentage of? Percentage of uh, respondents saying that is one of the factors for which they should be, their pay should be based. <coughs> so the second kind of uh, argument is that all this is kind of how things were in the 1970s, that all this is being broken down already and there's no need to change anything. Well, kind of true, you've got the reforms to the NHS through the agenda for change. As I was saying earlier, academies do notionally have the flexibility to pay um, their, their employees in a different fashion if they wanted to. Also, local authorities have some amount of flexibility. But in practice, the flexibilities are hardly ever used. Um, a key point, or a key example being that of academies where in a, um, this is an Office of Manpower Economics report, and the um, references are all at the back of the slide pack, so you can find them all there. Um, Office of Manpower Economics report, which finds that 65% of academies don't use the flexibilities that they currently have, and have no intention of using them in the future. 60% of those who say they're not using them go on to say that the reason they don't, or at least one of the reasons they don't, is because of the presence of national pay agreements and trade unions, which make changes uh, at their, their own level quite difficult. So I think, I think there's a fair case to say that um, how public and private sector pay is set is still very, very different. So what problems does this cause? Because on, of course, on its own, that doesn't really mean very much. <coughs> now, the big, the big point is that this essentially leads to quite large pay differentials between equivalent workers in the public and the private sectors. Um, because private sector can vary their wages based on local cost of living, local labour markets, um, how, how people are performing, that means that in a high cost area they might be able to increase their wages, um, in a lower cost area they'd be able to reduce their wages. In the public sector you have a across the board across the board rate, which means that in high cost areas the private sector will pay more and there will be a pay penalty associated with being in the public sector and in low cost areas the public sector tends to pay more than the private sector leading to a pay premium for the public sector workers. Um, again there's some amount of dis um, dispute as to whether these differentials actually exist. 
So a bit, of, a bit of data for you. Just looking at um, the dotted line is the public sector, male and female, and this is just a distribution plot essentially of where hourly wages are. And you'll see both male and female, the, the red dotted line is further to the right of the, of the blue line essentially, just showing that um, public sector, at least parts of the distribution of the public sector are, are paid more. But of course, it's a very different mix of employees. But of course, characteristics do vary quite a lot. <laughs> so, um, public sector workers, now this is quite hard to see probably, but 55% uh, of uh, public sector workers have a uh, high qualifications degree or above, compared to only a third of uh, private sector. Um, they tend to, private sector tends tend to be more, more male, 54% uh, male compared to uh, 30 33% male in the public sector. Public sector tends to have been in employment longer, so 44% uh, have been in their job for five to 10 years, as opposed to 28% in the private sector. All of those factors, certainly a few of those factors would suggest that the public sector workers should get paid a little bit more, so certainly length of tenure, experience, um, high qualifications, means that you probably should see some higher wages than the public sector. So this has motiv motivated quite a, a large, um, large body of empirical evidence which is trying to take account of these uh, differences in characteristics and look at see what the impact that has on the estimation of the pay differential. So a bit of econometrics, a bit of a, a statistical analysis to do that. Um, quite a good piece recently by Emerson and Jean at the, um, where from, at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. They looked at doing this, uh, controlling for a lot of factors. Basically this shows what, that their estimates of the pay differentials split by region for everyone and then for men and, men and females. Um, you know, the top here in Wales you've got an 18% premium for being in the public sector and down here in the South East you probably want pretty much a zero, um, zero uh, uh, differential comparing the public and the private sector. Um, Basically, females, you see a, a larger premium than for males pretty much everywhere. Um, I would suggest partly because of uh, the availability of part-time work and things like that in, the, in the public sector. So that's interesting. So we, we did some more work looking at this. Um, for the first time, taking it down to a local authority level using the annual population, annual population survey. Then combining the kind of standard regression framework with um, a technique called quantile regression, which allowed us to estimate the differentials at different parts of the income distribution. So at the say the bottom at the 10th percentile and the top at the 90th percentile. Um, the, the, the idea being that actually you might see quite large differences across the income distribution. So at the bottom, because of things like minimum wage um, and the unions, quite high union density for low wage work. Uh, you might see a larger differential at the bottom uh, for public sector workers than at the top. Um, I might just skip um, the boring regression um, unless anyone's that interested in going through an <coughs> equation. I didn't think so. Um, this one says the same but longer, so I'll skip that too, but others can go back to it. What's interesting are the, are the results. So basically doing this, controlling for, uh, controlling for as many factors as we can so looking at things like difference in age, uh, qualifications, where, where they are in terms of location, um, what else, um, how long they're spent in, in their job, all of these different things, 
and you come up with these huge amounts of results. Um, all you need to know is basically the Qs are where they are in the income distribution. So Q10 is, uh, for instance, the 10th percentile of the income distribution. Q90, the 90th percentile of the income distribution. That means that public sector worker at the uh, 10th percentile of the income distribution gets around a 11% uh, pay premium compared to those in the private sector with, with similar characteristics. At the top, there's pretty much no pay premium at all. So this is matching what the IFS had previously done. What I, think, what I think is quite interesting there is the difference you see between the, uh, I suppose I'm look at London here. So if you add these up, it's basically what you get. So if you add uh, out of London here, in a London here with the top one, you get around 19%. So what it's saying is actually the pay premium for people at the bottom in London is actually quite a lot higher than the, than, uh, the comparative group in Tyne and Weir. Now I think that's quite interesting because we usually, we usually assume that uh, pay premium in, in London is actually lower than elsewhere, but this is showing that for some workers actually it's an awful lot more. Now I'd, I'd argue that this is to do with, and this is a, um, an assumption rather than actually testing this because I don't have to be hard to figure out how to do it, but my thought is that this is probably about the London weighting which is given, I think, pretty much uniformly in London, but in the public sector, but probably not in the private sector, where minimum wages are far more regularly used, which don't, uh, don't reflect uh, the, the increased cost of living in London. So I think that's quite interesting. Um, at the top end, you see... That's what you just the bottom 10%. <coughs> yeah, it is. So you see, it's a... Yeah, it is. So it's just these two. Yeah, just these. Well, it's just that one. Yeah, just that one there. And then, the top end, and as soon as you see that, as soon as you go to the top end, you see that what you usually expect which is you know, huge, huge pay penalties for being uh, in the public sector in, in London. Partly, it'd be interesting to split this between Whitehall and non-Whitehall, but um, that's where I imagine most of it is. Um, this, is where, this is where people work, not where they live? Uh, yes, it's a place of work. Uh, no, it's not, it's where they live. Could I ask, uh, if you've done that chart, say, during the boom, say, a bit less than 10 years ago, would the distribution be similar? Would the, would the spread be wider because the private sector, or would the spread be tighter because the private sector in a boom is bidding up wages harder and the public sector is stiffer for all the reasons you've shown? We've, we've done the top line analysis of just the, the average pay premium uh, over time, and that hasn't really changed an awful lot, actually. Um, this isn't specific we, to us. No, no, so, we, so that was the, so there is some research that, show, that shows that it's cyclical, basically. It moves with the cycle. Um, we looked at this for a couple of years, and the results were pretty much, pretty much the same, to be honest. Hadn't really changed. Certainly how it's, the, the broad conclusions are pretty much the same. Um, this is just the, the other end of that table showing some of the other things we accounted for. So putting all that together, what does that mean in terms of differentials? This is just an easy way of seeing those results in a, in a table. So this is literally the percentage pay premium or pay differential uh, for equivalent workers in each of these areas. I just think it's interesting to see, you know, somewhere like Greater Manchester, you've got either a, a pay premium all the way, all the way across for females, a pay premium for most of the males apart from this, which is pretty much zero, but for, um, the top end of, of inner London, outer London, and the southeast, you've got huge pay penalties for being 
and above the 75th percentile in the, in the public sector, which has huge implications, I think, for the performance of public sector uh, management, for instance, which I think you know, is something we need to, need to think about. Um, this, and this controls for the characteristics of the worker rather than the characteristics of the job? Yes. So if it happened that you could only get inferior workers in London in the public sector, that's not coming into it. Um, you might get a pay premium at the bottom because the people who actually got the rubbish jobs in the public sector were qualitatively inferior. So it, it, would account, it, it accounts for qualifications, yeah. for instance. It accounts for, I think we've done it so you, you account for marital status as much as you can. Um, within within the kind of personal characteristics and demographics, without you know, pushing it too far, because of course you don't want to you don't want to explain it all away. Because if you put everything in, then you're actually explaining what you're trying to capture. Right, what I'm saying is, if relatively poor pay in London meant that you actually recruited inferior workers into those those jobs, yeah, um, yeah, no, no, here was yeah. a positive pay. Yeah, yes, it, mm. yes, it probably would, yeah, yeah. But in, yeah, I agree with that. I'll go on to make the next point, but it's just, I just find it quite interesting that in a London you get a, a pay penalty right from the, the half, half of workers in the public sector are getting a pay penalty, which is pretty interesting. So that's, um, that's kind of new stuff. Uh, it's building on the IFS work, um, which they in turn built on from us. Um, the interesting thing is looking at it by local authority area, I think, and an attempt at doing this here in rather badly copied Google map. Um, so the dark orange areas are, so what this does, it takes, it takes those, that distribution of pay differentials that you just saw and looks at all the workers in a local authority, assesses what their pay differential would be and then takes the average of the, all of those differentials. So you get a, an, an average of the local authority basically. So you, you look here, you've got you know, a dark orange is over, a penalty of over 20, white means it's equivalent, and dark grey, a premium of, of over 20. So down here in London, you've got uh, pretty, pretty high uh, pay penalties. North, you know, you've got the, so, some obvious stuff apart from, you know, you've got a dark orange up here, orange here, orange here, which just so shows you can't just look at a regional level. Actually, there's quite a lot of variation uh, within, within this, within, within kind of broader regions, which I think is, is pretty interesting. So um, is dark orange and orange the same? Dark orange, so it's graded. So dark orange is 20, uh, is over 20. Orange is, I can't remember, it's I think between 10 and 20, for instance. Uh, darker gray is, is worse than lighter gray. White is zero. Is and this related to the pay of the public sector? Actually, the higher pay of the private which bits of it? Well, I'm just thinking the premium represents a difference between the pay of the private and the public sector. It's not necessarily in the public sector where the pay is high or low. No, it's no, no. Who reflect the high and the rate In fact, I mean, it does, it does exactly. So the point is that public sector pay is broadly constant across the country for, for, for a set band of workers, whereas in the private sector it, it, is, it is allowed to vary. So it is that variation in the private sector which is <coughs> causing these differentials. Um, and just an example of how you know you can have huge variations within regions. Um, the overall London differential for a male is pretty much zero, um, whereas 
In Croydon, you've got a 12.3% premium, and in Islington, a 20.69 penalty. I, I pause slightly of over the how far you should go with this analysis based on that, because that is quite a big unexplainable difference, which I, I can't explain. So it's just, but it is showing that you do have quite large variations within both regions and and potentially within reasonably small regions, so even in in or out of London. <coughs> Can I, can I ask, have sure. you done this on a workplace basis? Because it occurs to me that some of those differentials are reflecting the cost of being a resident in certain local authorities. So I can't remember. I think we have done it based on... I need to, I need to go back and check. It would be interesting to see it people working in those areas as opposed to people who live in those areas. No, absolutely. And also might be very likely that someone living in Islington might work yeah. in senior management for RBS, but they'd be hardly likely to live in Croydon. Quite. No offence to Croydon. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you, no, no, you, I think that's, yeah. I think that's particularly true in London, well, right, I think it's a pretty obvious thing in London. I was asked to make it relevant to London, though, so I, I don't usually use those figures. <laughs> um, I mean, that's all, I guess that's, of all a little bit abstract um, until you start thinking about what the existence of these pay premium uh, pay differentials uh, mean in actual practice. So there's a couple of areas. I think quality of public services is quite a big issue. So we've seen that some parts of the public sector are overpaid, some parts are underpaid. What impact does that have on public services? Um, I think the most obvious thing to say is that if public sector is not paying as much as the private sector, then you might struggle to recruit um, the a sufficient quantity or quality of, of staff. So what do vacancy rates look like across the country? I'll just take a rather topical um, example of nurse vacancies. You see here in the southeast of London, you've got four vacancy rates four times as high as in the, in the northeast and the left-hand side. Now the question is, does that reflect a? Um, does is do you see that reflected in the the pay differential? So, do you see here um, high pay penalties for being in the public sector, and do you see a lower pay penalty or a, a pay premium for being in the public sector down the other end? And if you just do a kind of scatter plot of of the uh, pay differentials that we uh, estimated in the previous few graphs compared to these vacancy rates, well, you see that actually. I don't like drawing lines, so I haven't, but you can draw a line kind of like that, which shows that, yes, where, where the pay premium are lower or there's a pay penalty, vacancy rates are higher, essentially. And this, is, this has been the subject of a few other bits of work um, which have looked at these sorts of things. So um, Burgess got started from proper in 2003 and I think a later version in 2008, basically finding that in high-cost areas where there are um, pay uh, penalties for being in the public sector, there's vacancy rates which are higher. This means this leads to the greater use of vacant uh, uh, temporary staff and agency staff, which they showed leads to death in hospitals. Essentially, that the quality of the public service falls and leads to deaths, and that's a, a quite quite a, a scary quite a scary start finding. Um, other, other research looking at just this point that. Nurses are harder to recruit in high-cost areas. Um, again, Alison Wolfe in 2010 
looking at um, showing that there's, it's not just about a regional or, or even local authority level, it can be between two neighbourhoods. So you've got the leafy suburb versus you know, the slightly grotty estate. And which school do you go and work in in the same local authority when you get paid the same amount? Well, I'd argue that quite a lot of teachers would, would, would want to go and work in the leafy suburb um, rather than the grotty estate. So that's, that's kind of the gist of that report. And then a more recent report by Carol Proffer and others um, around educational outcomes showing that the same kind of argument here that national pay bargaining and the differences between public and private sector pay lead to um, worse outcomes for um, children in higher cost areas essentially. There's a broader argument as well around productivity uh, in the public sector that we, I think most people, hopefully most people realise that productivity in the public sector measurement issues aside has been pretty stagnant for you know, at least a decade um, and I'd argue that a lack of a, an effective pay and uh, compensation strategy and the lack of formal pay are, are key factors to this if you compare to how a, you know, a growing pub, uh, private sector firm might, might, um, might perform. And obviously more recent examples, um, the Prime Minister responding to the Francis report into the Mid-Staffs mid Hospital uh, disaster. Um, He's basically making this point that actually basing nurses' pay on performance uh, is, is an aspect of, of, of uh, reform that they'd like to, be, like to see, be seen uh, taking forward. The next area where I think there's an issue is in terms of the fairness for public sector workers. I think this is a point which is underplayed, actually. So by paying uh, kind of nurses, teachers, the same rate, rate across the country, you're un unable to take a, a take account of the cost of living in those areas. So, you know, take out, even if you take out the South East and London, and just look at the South West compared to Wales, um, so this is compared to the North East, and there's a huge difference in, so 110%-ish. So it's 10% more expensive to live in uh, East, East and East Anglia and uh, the South West than it is to live in the North East. And those differences feed through into living standards of the, of the nurses and the teachers that are living and working in those areas, which just doesn't really seem fair when that's not, you can't actually take that um, into account in their pay. So, aside from the quality of public services, there's a, I guess there's a question of, are we using this money uh, efficiently, effectively? Um, can we reduce the cost of public sector um, services? Um, Given the size of the fiscal challenge ahead of us, I think this is a really kind of pertinent question at the moment. So the key question is, what would the cost of public sector employment be if we were to completely remove those pay differentials? Uh, so pay the public sector within 1% of what they should be getting paid based on their characteristics in the private sector. This is quite a scary chart for anybody in government because it basically shows that we, pay, we underpay people, people in, in London, out of London, and the South East so much. Uh, so this is like 1.8 billion pounds of underpayment, 1.3 billion pounds of underpayment, 2.8 billion pounds of underpayment in the South East. Um, overpayments are tiny in these areas because basically almost 100% of people in those areas are underpaid. Um, so you end up, even if you take account of all the overpayments in the other regions, which are much, much less stark actually, you end up with a UK cost of equalisation of pay of £3.8 billion. So clearly that's not a, a kind of a, a political uh, or economic winner at the moment. Uh, so it's quite a, quite a big challenge. So what does that mean for London? Um, well, 
equalising pages with 1% of private sector would cost a lot because we underpay our top workers a lot more than we overpay our, our workers at the bottom. Um, impact of London alone would be around £3 billion. And you know, thinking politically now about the desire to rebalance uh, the, the economy geographically, so you know, try and boost growth in the northeast, northwest, Scotland, Wales. Now, this is basically a large fiscal transfer in the, in the wrong direction. So, politically, this is an absolute nightmare. Um, thankfully, um, obviously, pay is only one part of one part of the package. Um, so, what about the other elements of, of compensation? So, this is basically the showing um, compared to the equivalents in the low-paid private sector and the high-paid private sector. What we might think about uh, these different parts of, of um, packages. So, holidays probably longer in the public sector. <coughs> taking into account privileged days as well, even longer. Pensions much, 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 much larger um, because of the uh, prevalence of uh, defined benefit uh, schemes in the public sector, which have been largely removed in the private sector. And even those defined benefit schemes are, are much more um, comprehensive in the in the public sector. Bonus payments probably worse in the public sector. Uh, flexible working is greater. Uh, nightly motives, um, although having worked in the private, uh, public sector, I'll tell you there aren't too many of those. And other fringe benefits, a bit more mixed. A lot of these are quite hard to take account of. You can't really measure them in any surveys. It's hard to work out how they're affected. Apart from pensions, where um, another good paper by the IFS um, showed that even defined benefit schemes in the public sector are 6.6% more generous uh, than in the private sector. Um, that's the opposite of what you're Sorry. Damn, that was the title I missed. So, yeah, <laughs> more generous in the public sector. Uh, sorry. Um, so, public sector scheme is more generous. Um, and just a, a point of this is this is going to be even an underestimation because of the prevalence of defined benefit schemes in the, in the public sector, whereas you don't really get that in the private sector anymore. So, we took this into account basically. Um, taking the 6.6 percent, which they taking 6.6 percent into account when uh, getting our estimates of the uh, pay premium, and you get a much more uh, attractive picture. Um, by taking that into account, around half of those judged to be underpaid are completely compensated by their pension. Um, so just taking account of that turns that big horrible figure which you saw previously a 3.8 billion pound uh, cost into a 6.3 billion pound saving, mainly coming from London. So these in and out of London, fig London figures here you see are pretty much half, more than half actually, uh, compared to the cost they were having on the economy beforehand. Um, so that's, that's a, a rosier picture for, for politicians I think. Finally, uh, the title of, the title of um, well, a play on the title of um, of, of the paper, so can can the kind of differentials and the kind of policy be explained away, or you know, is it you know, justified by regional policy? Is this a good thing for for regional policy, where we're kind of fiscally transferring uh, transferring money into kind of worse off regions? Now, intuitive crowding out arguments would suggest no. So this is saying that actually. By having high level of high public sector pay in in the regions means that private sector can't afford to pay as much as they as much as that, so they don't go there. Basically, you're crowding out the private sector. Um, the evidence here is it's fair to say a little bit mixed. 
it's inconclusive and you can argue it in, in both ways. So, so I'm not going to focus on that, on that for too long. I think more conclusive, um, it's a paper in 2012 by uh, Overman and Faggio, not too sure how to pronounce his name, um, the LSE, LSE um, basically arguing that actually very high levels of public sector employment does crowd out private sector employment. So this isn't about the rate of pay, it's just about the overall size of the public sector, which as you saw in an earlier uh, chart was, um, so that one which had the local authorities with the kind of very high levels of around 40-45% in Wales and then low level in Kensington and Chelsea, where you have high levels of public sector employment, actually you crowd out the private sector and those high levels are associated also with pay premium. So the two there I think go hand in hand. Also what about London? Um, you know, London is supposed to be kind of the shining capital where we're attracting you know, multinational companies, uh, everything else to, to the UK and if our public services are worse uh, because of national pay bargaining and this kind of attempt at uh, a, a kind of, uh, redistributed policy then uh, surely that's not a, not a particularly good thing to be trying to sell um, the, the, sell, sell the London economy and the UK economy. And I don't know if I want to talk about this actually, um, but this is just showing that public sector, public sector employment is, is higher where non-employment, so inactivity and unemployment is higher as well, so there's a correlation there. Um, the argument there is that essentially we've tried to do regional policy by filling up um, lack of demand with the public sector in, in certain areas, which you'd question whether it's actually worked very well. So. Do we need change of the current system? Um, yes, I think we do. Um, it's not fair for public sector workers who are seeing quite different, uh, quite large differences in their living standards because they're getting paid the same, but it doesn't take account of their living costs. Um, the current structure doesn't incentivise performance. I'd argue it's making public services worse. It's not cost effective. It's costing quite a lot of money. And arguments around whether it could or could not uh, damage local growth. So I think reform is needed. So how 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 do we do this? Um, this is a rather oddly placed uh, thing, actually. Sorry. Um, this probably should have come before that last slide. Um, so in London, I think that the lessons for London are that wage differentials are um, vary quite a lot, both within it and across different regions, and also across the wage distribution. So there's interesting kind of ideas here around the bottom for London. So around the low paid in London. Uh, who have quite large pay, uh, quite large pay premiums, which we didn't actually expect to find. So I think it was quite interesting. Um, so, you know, you could argue that all we need to do is change the London waiting in some way, have more have more places with a greater waiting. But that doesn't really make sense because you get these perverse uh, perverse effects at the bottom, which means you don't tackle some of the biggest issues. Um, similarly, public services like to be impacted. What the impacts that's going to have? Um, so, I mean, essentially, you can't just have a, a simple, straightforward, let's bump up pay in the high-cost areas across the board because that doesn't really tackle um, some of the things we're looking at. The other kind, of, uh, other kind of ideas are whether we should move to regional or zonal pay. And this, this unfortunately, was where, so the context being that uh, the Chancellor in the Autumn Statement 2011, I believe, um, asked the pay review bodies to consider whether their public sector should move to a more localised system of pay. Um, and unfortunately, the kind of argument around this was kind of stolen by various groups and it turned into a, a debate about whether we should have regional pay or even zonal pay. I think actually this really didn't do much credit to the debate because 
as I said, you can't by having either regional or zonal pay, you can't get into the into the kind of granularity that you really need to say that in different parts of the country, different parts of local authorities, even you have diff very different labour markets, and so you can't just say increase or reduce pay in the northeast by X and increase pay in the southeast by Y, because different parts, different even different sectors in those areas will have very different labour markets which they need to respond to. So there'll be vacancies in some areas which need responding to much more strongly. Boundary issues, you know. Imagine a few people here will know a lot about boundary issues and nightmare. And, you know, come back to a bit to what we were saying earlier about whether it's where you live or whether you work. So if you're living on one side of a local authority boundary, but working on the other, do you get paid based on where you're living or where you're working? Then you know, the big the big issue I think is that this doesn't really take account of performance. So even if you're getting regional variation, you're not taking account of one of the biggest things um, which we found a problem with. All the way to the other end. Um, what about individual pay? So individual contracts for all public sector workers. Um, the costs in terms of um, admin, I think, would be horrendous. And here's where I do agree with the unions um, that it would be quite a, quite a scary prospect to have to, have to negotiate uh, an individual contract with every public sector employee. And I think there are economies of scale that come with centralised negotiation of various elements of um, pay packages and, and terms and conditions. Equal pay legislation would be an issue um, which I'm not going to delve into. And, if, and if you do that, I think what we show at the moment is that it's the potential for quite high costs, particularly in London and the South East, I think that's quite a high potential, uh, which can have knock-on effects into you know, the, uh, the broader fiscal picture. So if not those two things, what needs to be done? So thankfully, we can learn key lessons from both the private sector in the UK and the public sector in, in, in other countries. I'd argue that the public sector needs to pay system which provides greater local authority so they can, uh, managers can respond to problems recruit in, in recruiting people, uh, recognises performance of both individuals and organisations, accepts that highly paid public servants are not necessarily a problem. So you know, discussions we've had in the, in the press and elsewhere about you know, public servants shouldn't be paid more than the Prime Minister are frankly ridiculous. You, know, you've got, you, shouldn't have a, you wouldn't ever have that discussion within a private business saying the CEO shouldn't be paid more than the Prime Minister. So why have it with, with public servants who are at the top? Um, and that's not that's not me being biased. Um, and then I think importantly, a system that doesn't overburden uh, managers with admin, and you know, they can actually get on with their day job. Sweden is a really interesting um, example of how it could be done. So a lot of people who talk about Sweden and their public sector argue that it's a completely localised system. That there are there is this idea that each. Each person negotiates their wages individually. And actually, we went over there for uh, a few days actually and spoke with a lot of people. And actually, that's not how it works at all. So as I was kind of saying earlier, they've got these kind of different levels of negotiations. At the top here, they've got uh, national negotiations with the unions, with trade bodies, with business. So they're criminal their CBI. And they pull together a kind of package across sectors of you know, pension arrangements, insurance, job security funds, which are all done at a national level. Then they move down to a kind of sectoral level, where they set a broader framework for how negotiation around pay should be, should be managed. So you might say that, and you might set out kind of examples of where pay should be higher and lower based on living costs. You might say that you have a, a certain flexibility in terms of performance, which you can flex depending on how well someone's performed. And that sets out a broad, um, a broad framework, which you, you can then take down to the enterprise level, so broadly the workplace level, and have negotiations individually about how the, the worker fits within that broad framework. So you might say, look, on this, 
um, you know, we've got a performance framework here. You are either outstanding or good or not so good, or you're going to get going to get fired. And that's a, a broader negotiation about how you're performing, which both reflects the kind of the, the cost of living stuff, which is negotiated here, and the performance stuff, which is then negotiated here. And there's a really quite strong buy-in between the unions, uh, local authorities, business, um, politicians who stay out of the process, which I think is a really interesting lesson for the UK, where you know, politicians can't stay out of this process for us. So that's, a, I think, a really interesting, um, really interesting model which um, we could learn from. Similarly, in the, in the UK private sector, it basically just reflects what I've said, that there's some use of national scales. In fact, large businesses do use national scales. But there's flexibility locally to... Uh, flex those arrangements if they're having recruitment problems, they reflect performance, they have a really strong um, nature of performance management often, and a greater reliance on progression pay which is not related to, to tenure or length in post, but is based on that performance, which is clearly not the case in the, in the UK public sector. So, what does this mean for the public sector in the UK? Um, I would argue that some elements of pay, uh, the pay package, need to remain centrally bargained, so pensions, pension arrangements, uh, terms and conditions. But then we have this, like we have, like we have in Sweden, basically, a local a framework which is set at a, at a broader level with local choice over which of these frameworks you take on. So an individual school might say, actually, we, we would like to go it alone and set our own framework. But they do have that choice of saying, actually, there's a a sectoral level negotiation here which we can fit into as long as we are putting into place performance rate of pay. And that's the, the, big, the big lesson, I think, uh, is, is performance rate of pay that fits in with the local framework. In practice, I realise that's slightly um, unclear about what that would mean in practice. Uh, so some kind of firm policy recommendations, I think, basically need to get, read, get rid of uh, the automatic pay scale uplifts that happen every year based on how long someone's been in, been in post. Um, I just don't see how, how we can justify them being there. Um, at the moment, the government has announced a 1% uh, pay bill cap uh, in terms of over the next two years. And we'd argue that you need to adjust local area pay envelopes with that 1% pay uplift. Um, in a practical sense, we argue that where local costs are judged to be high, you take that 1% pay, pay scale uplift and put it all into, progression, into a pot for progression uh, pay, which means that you distribute that in a way which gives more to your best workers or best performing workers and less to your less well-performing workers. Where local area costs are judged to be low and currently public sector is being overpaid, you give half of that pay increase to workers and distribute that again through uh, performance-related pay. So the pay bill is increasing more slowly overall and you put the rest of that money into uh, initiatives ring fence for local growth initiatives. So you aren't taking demand out of the, uh, out of the local economies where uh, the costs are low. Question, how do we, how do we assess what's a low, low or high cost area? Well, basically we're doing this already. So at the moment, local authorities for a number of different areas have uh, area cost adjustments. These are supposed to take account of and different, different labour markets across the country and how expensive it is to hire and keep workers. Um, so budgets at the moment are adjusted. So these local cost adjustments vary, I think, between 0.9 and 1.3, I think. And the budgets are for local authorities are um, either increased, or actually just increased by, what if their LCA factor is above one, 
But the, the strange thing is that even though the budgets are increased, they can't then push that through into pay. So it has to go on things non-pay non related. So it's all of it a little bit strange. But basically, the, these, these cost adjustment factors exist. They reflect local labor markets. And surprise, surprise, they fit quite closely with our estimation of pay differentials. So where uh, pay differentials are high, where we think area, areas are, where we think public sector is being overpaid because costs are very low, the current cost adjustment factor is relatively low. So just showing that you can, you can feed this across into our, in, into our analysis. So what does that mean in, in practice, trying to make this quite complicated thing, I think, a little bit more straightforward? I'm happy to take questions. Um, so where the LCA, LCA factors are determining that uh, local costs are high, so they're above one, you use a 1% pay uplift in a performance-related pay pot. Where the LCA factors are below one, so costs are low, you use the 1% pay uplift split between performance-related pay, so you're reducing the increase in those areas compared to the high-cost areas and the rest for local growth. So over time, this means that you get a narrowing um, a greater divergence, sorry, a greater divergence in the pay pots in different local authorities. So where costs are low, you get a, you get a, a greater reduction over time in, in how the, the, those um, pay bills are being increased. And where costs are high, you have a greater increase over time, which builds up over time into how pay bills are looking. So eventually this will more closely match uh, local, lo local uh, labour market costs. Um, the, the big elephant in the room in the, is that um, London is a really big issue because we, we underpay people in London so much in the public sector, it will take a very, very long time and a lot of money to get to where we want to get to. Um, so that's a, a big kind of a big question for the future. So overall, I'd say there's everything to gain from moving to a more localised pay structure, um, improving the quality of public services, um, achieving greater regional growth and job creation, by taking that money out of the, of the pay bill um, in low cost areas and recycling that into job creation schemes. And then finally, just providing fairness for workers across the public sector who, you know, at the moment, don't get the kind of living standards they might do in, in high cost areas because they, their pay can't reflect it. And I think I will leave it there and open up to questions. Thank you very much. Nancy. Um, can people we, say who they are? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Nancy Holman, LSE. Could we go back to one of the first slides where you actually show the difference in the ways people are paid both in the public and private sector, the one with spot pay on it. So in the private sector you might get spot pay. I think it was about maybe... Keep going. Is it that one? Yeah, okay. So we're thinking about the difference in the way private sector versus public sector are paid. And one of the ways is by, via pay rates and spot salaries in the private mm -hmm. sector. So what you know from that is that, and a lot of studies have been done on this, that those types of salaries favor men and disfavor women. So basically what you're seeing in the pay differential with women in the public sector is perhaps what you're exposing is an inequality in the private sector. The next thing we have are things like um, in the private sector you get performance related pay, which sounds really nifty. I'm never sure how many people have actually had experience of that, but having had experience of that in the print industry where you get performance related pay, what you find is people cheat. That's how you get better performance. You do most estimates, yeah. so you make them up. It's very similar to things, for example, like 
PPP, you know, the uh, mis-selling of pensions, mis-selling of payment insurance, all of these mis-selling things have been down to actual cheating because of incentives put in place by the private sector. I'm not really sure linking that to the idea of making people's lives better, how that works. Okay, so the first one, um, we re recognised that gender was an issue, mm -hmm. um, partly because gender equality is arguably better in the public sector than the private sector, mm. some of the reasons you're talking about. So what we did, we re-ran the analysis, uh, the first step, we re-ran re re the analysis of the pay differentials, assuming that females got paid in the same way as men did in the private sector, basically. So you get what I mean? So you, you're taking out any kind of impact of discrimination. So you're saying, assuming this female got paid on her characteristics, the same rate as the, as the males did, that didn't really do much for the much for the analysis. Actually, you still got quite a high premium for for females in different parts. So there was also broader the same. So that kind of counters some of that. I also don't think that, and I think this applies to the other one that because there's some bad management and bad practices in the private sector, that we should have a system of pay negotiation in the in the public sector, which is dysfunctional. We should try and improve but management. Couldn't you argue the opposite as well? That it's as dysfunctional in the private sector when you actually have incentive-related pay that really doesn't incentivise performance. Is basically what I'm trying to say, and and that's just from personal experience of working in those industries, but also from you know quite a lot of um, recent problems. No, I no, I, I completely agree. But I, again, I think that with better management, and it, we spoke to kind of Hayes and others. You know, Performance management specialist, that the best the best firms have performance ready pay, and they put in practice things which at least attempt to make it work better. And they seem to think that actually doing this makes people work better. Mm -hmm. Sweden has performance ready pay system for their public sector. It seems to work quite well. Mm -hmm. People they also bought have into a very it. different rapport with no, no, no. the public sector in general, and that hasn't been so, decimated. So we're um, one of a broader range of recommendations is about how the unions engage with this process and we're really keen that they have a much stronger role actually across both the private sector and the public sector. So much more of a Swedish model where you get this kind of board of um, interested parties who are negotiating together rather than this kind of clashing which is you know, in the UK case so we you know we see it is so unhelpful. So we very much see that we need to reform industrial relations as well as doing this stuff because we can't do this without the unions. They have to be brought along with it and actually have a, a really strong role to play. And one of the ways we think we should do that is have much more like the low pay commission where the unions have a, have a it's a tripartite system so the unions have a seat permanently on the low pay commission. We argue that the unions should have representation on the pay review bodies uh, in a slightly refined role but they should have a key input into that. Travis. Uh, Tony Travis from the others. Me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. um, you you uh, cited evidence about uh, the way in which services are, or had some research suggesting that public service quality was worse in areas where the, as where the gap, the pay gap between public and private sector was greatest. But I mean, if you look at 
evidence from London in recent years, and London, your figures showed, had the biggest gap between what you'd expect the public sector to be paying. It's very clear in some of your latest slides. Successive audit commission comprehensive performance uh, assessment data showed that the inner London boroughs, where these problems must be worse, had by far the best CPA measures. Excellent, improving quality year after year after year. Um, London Challenge, under the previous government, carried forward in effect by this, saw bigger increases in improvements in the quality of London schools than any others. And um, I think NHS quality, it's been recent work suggesting that the London hospitals, particularly the bigger inner and central London hospitals, tended to be among the best in terms of service quality, <coughs> measured by you know, all the measures that have been in the news recently. So, the, oddly, the area of the country which has the biggest problems, at the very least, there isn't much compelling evidence it's public services are much worse than the average for the country. Let's put it at that, at its weakest. Question, does immigra is immigration, migration, a huge missing variable in the analysis as it affects certainly London? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head whether that was the case. I would <laughs> argue though that just because absolute level London hospitals, teachers, certain parts of the country might be doing better, doesn't mean that that is as good as they should be, which is the question. Which is the question that the analysis is trying to argue is that, given the other characteristics, how well should they be performing? Should they be performing um, based on the other characteristics, I, I, I guess? So you're taking into account those other, other factors which might ordinarily make them better, saying actually, once you take in that, that into account, you take into, in, into account that their problems with, with uh, recruitment, they should be even better. The question is your counterfactual. It's a dynamic issue, though, because the dynamic, the suggestions from some of the education, recent performance of schools, is that the performance has been getting better. Now, I don't know if there's any evidence to show the underlying um, base upon which London schools are operating is any sense easier than it used to be. I'm not sure there's any evidence of that. And that would have to be uh, included in both sides of the analysis if it's just not just a spot analysis. Oh, but the level is worse. Sorry? But the level is worse, which is what current proper shows. Yes. Well, the, 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 the input's more difficult. The, 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 the level of output from the schools and from hospitals is, is, is clearly worse. No, I think what he's saying... Southeast. Well, not, not... No, what you were saying was that based on the characteristics of the individuals, they should be, in theory, doing better. It depends on your counterfactual, I guess the yeah. point is. Um, I can't remember the details of Carol's paper. Um, so I'd have to defer to Carol slash come back to you. Okay. But I, I, I certainly remember well, I've both, both the NHS paper and the education paper, I think they've got nice natural experiments in which I think are pretty good. So that would mean that even though the inner London boroughs had, <coughs> according to the Audit Commission measures, amongst the best and indeed best regarded according to their satisfaction. It is an average as well though, of course. You know, you're talking about an average. Sure. So you might have outliers either side. Yeah, but, uh, but the point is that the problem to which you're alluding must be worst in 
I mean, if the Kensington and Chelsea's and the Westminster's, where the you'd, have, the you'd assume so, yeah. is, is unlikely to be narrower there, isn't it? No, you're right. Right, okay. Please. Um, and Sarah Liliana, and manager in the public sector. Um, I've got a, a few comments, um, mainly about why I don't think that what you're proposing will work. That's very helpful. <laughs> The first of them is to do with fairness and, and your bonus uh, payments or your performance-related pay. Um, I, I have to say that five years ago, I thought that that was working quite well, and we have uh, a very small amount of, of bonus or performance-related pay um, in my organisation. But it's a very small element, and it was used to provide, uh, if you like, a, a thank you to people who were performing well, and it did provide some incentive. Um, I say five years ago, because now, in the current economic climate, it's become more a source of division, unhappiness, and very, very difficult to manage than anything else. And I think what you're not perhaps um, taking sufficiently into account is that a lot of people who work in the public se sector are very keen on fairness. And we now have interminable meetings to try to resolve the issues of how to distribute the very, very little amount of performance related pay that we can distribute. I've worked so for the Treasury. Yeah. much more efficient. I've managed in the Treasury, I understand. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's not helpful. Um, and actually, in the end, people, um, I think, find that they end up being more discontented and less willing to do their job properly because of the outcomes in the current constrained environment than, than would have been the case otherwise. That's my first point. My second point is about economic growth. I don't think you're sufficiently emphasising the, the role that public sector employment plays in areas of the country which are uh, doing less well in terms of economic growth. We're all not doing very well, but uh, some areas are doing well. And um, the importance of having a large number of people who have purchasing power in those areas, and you're suggesting uh, that the, the impact on employment is negative in the private sector, but what about the impact on purchases of goods and services on the local economy, which I think is really crucial. Um, and the third point, and these are in descending order of importance, so the third one, but I think it's still an important point, um, is that if you do have your differentiated system with some areas um, being allowed to, to if you like, uh, reward people more for supposedly having a higher cost of living in those areas. What will happen is that people move to those areas, away from the other areas, if they can. Um, and that will just simply lead to greater divergence between the less well-off areas and the better-off areas. So Some good points. Um, fairness... Not keen, as you can see. <laughs> no, no, it's, that's really interesting, actually. So, fairness... I've obviously I was spent eight, eight years at the Treasury, and I understand your pain at um, trying to negotiate a fair outcome in terms of appraisal and um, how to allocate the pot, as it were. I don't think that's. I think it's an important consideration when you're designing management structures and how to communicate these sorts of things to employees. I don't think it's a reason not to go ahead with something which has been shown in the private sector and in different parts of the world to be effective in rewarding and incentivising staff. I, I see that as a, as a more, certainly from my internal treasury experience, I see that more as a problem of my management and others, man others management around me that I couldn't communicate what was happening effectively to 
two more uh, two less senior members of staff and I think part of that is a, a lack of management culture in, inside the public sector which you know, from my experience which is like except confined to the civil, civil service needs quite serious seriously addressing it and I'm happy to discuss this uh, further with you. the growth one I don't think we're not talking about taking money out of the areas so public expenditure in all the areas will stay the same that's the key argument of the, of the piece that by ring fencing budgets but splitting that between performance value pay and growth initiatives you are not taking any money out of the areas my argument would be that with a certain pay bill you have a choice between paying higher rates of pay and employing a lower amount of people or paying slightly lower rates of pay and employing more people I'd argue that the growth impact of employing more people who are more likely to spend all of their money than just 95% of it, actually you can have a positive impact on local area growth just from, the kind, just from that kind of propensity to consume of people who are uh, newly employed rather than being on benefits. Bit of a textbook answer, but I think there are <coughs> sensible things you could do with the pot of money which is left over, but still bring fence for that area around regeneration, around um, growth initiatives which have been shown to create jobs in the past. Um, finally, damn, what was the third one? I didn't write it down. <laughs> About um, um, people moving. Yes, I, I don't know. Um, I th we kind of need them to, yeah? I mean, the, the, there's vacancy rates for a reason. So we kind of need people to move there to do those jobs. And that's the whole point, that at the moment you've got uh, pay that's too low in some areas, which means that people don't, that we need there aren't there. And so the whole point is that people will go to areas where we need them most. So we don't need teachers in Yorkshire? No, we do, absolutely. But pay needs to reflect, you need to be able to reflect the living costs of, of the areas where people, where we, I'm not saying we need less uh, t uh, less teachers in Yorkshire or less nurses. But I think what you're nurses. saying is if we pay more in London, then there'll be fewer in Yorkshire. Um, I'd say it was on a yeah, longer term basis. The logic of the earlier argument is they'd be better. Some of the better teachers would move to you from Yorkshire to London. And some of the less good ones no. move from London to Yorkshire. No, I don't. No, I don't. That must be the logic of this discussion. No, I don't think so at all. It must be surely that that's given the discussion we had earlier on. That would be exactly it. I don't. I don't see how. Unless you hope that it would incentivise all teachers to be better. So there's there's two questions here. One is living costs, and one is performance related pay. Living costs, I think, is is a fact that we have vacancy rates. I would argue because living costs aren't adequately met in some areas, London, South East, and so pay is too low, basically, for the public sector. Performance value pay is, a, I think, a separate issue, and I think a separately interesting issue about making sure that we're making it, uh, employees in the public sector as productive and as, um, as good at doing what they do you know, in a really important industry, um, making them be as productive as they can. But you're saying in real terms they're better paid in Yorkshire than, than yeah, absolutely. in the South? The problem is that people don't understand the people Well, they clearly do. They clearly do because the vacancy rates show it. Sorry, should we move on? Yes, Eric. Eric Sorensen, ex civil servant in the 1980s when pay performance related pay was introduced at admittedly a very modest scale. I'd just like to reinforce a couple. I thought it was a bit dismissive, Matthew, Tony's point about. Uh, the oddity of, of London, where in inner London, which is the sharpest differential in, in terms of all the charms, performance is good. It's not only good, actually, it's, it's markedly better in many cases in the public sector than, than elsewhere in the country. And as Tony alluded to, there are clearly other dynamics going on in central London, 
literal sense, overwhelming some of your uh, statistical um, columns. And the other thing we haven't, I don't think we talked about, is actually the size of the workplace we're talking about, and also sectors which is internally integrated and hierarchical. So typically, the, the public sector will tend to be, I suspect, in bigger, larger workplace um, establishments than the private sector. Now, obviously, you know, a, a big bank, that's self-evidently not true, but a large number of public sector unionized workplaces um, are actually very big in themselves in terms of number of employees. And therefore, the arguments about A, fairness and equity internally, uh, as colleague here emphasized, and also uh, the arguments about how do you single out an individual's contribution to performance when it's clearly an integrated workplace system becomes incredibly difficult. And certainly in, in a typical whiteboard department, trying to single out an individual's better performance when there are all sorts of people contributing to the development of a policy or the improvement of a program and so on was an absolute nightmare. And it overwhelmed uh, uh, the HR system. And, and they, they solved it by actually making the, the payments very small uh, so that uh, at the end of the day, when you've got 500 quid or not in a year, it didn't matter tremendously. Um, and so I think you need, in a sense, to correlate for size of workplace, which then tends to be correlated in turn with unionization and also the internal kind of uh, uh, interdependent workings internally. So it's very difficult to, uh, to isolate out an individual's performance coupled with the massive problem of culture and the very different culture of um, the public sector in this country, for better or worse, and the private sector. All good points. Um, I don't think I was, I didn't mean to dismiss Tony's points. Um, my point is that I'm not Carol, so I, I don't feel very, <laughs> very confident about arguing the merits of her, you know, quite complex analysis um, for her, so I would just like to defer to her on that, basically. Um, <coughs> Management's difficult, yeah? Um, but it seems that McDonald's, Tesco and others do it pretty well and don't seem to have necessarily the same kind of arguments we're having here. They're all big employers, yeah? And in, within the civil service, you know, I, I, would challenge, I would challenge you that you know pretty damn well who the good people were and who the bad people were <coughs> and how, how well they were performing within each of your teams and each of the teams outside your teams. The, the issue is... I think, I'm going to refer to civil service because that's what you were talking about, is that we're not prepared to tackle poor, poor performance. There is, it, is, it is a cultural thing where we do not accept that people aren't performing as they should and don't take action soon enough to, to deal with that. I, and I that's don't disagree with that, but I think that's a different issue. Um, I think uh, management rigour is one thing, trying to find an indicator. You know, when you're working in McDonald's, if you're still working in an insurance company, you're selling units, it's quite easy to measure who's doing well and who's not doing so well. When you're in something where your output is a much more diffuse uh, concept, it becomes very difficult indeed. Well, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I don't actually agree. I think you know, there are tools in place to rank, basically to rank performance of a whole organisation from number one to number 105 or 1,005. It was done at the Treasury. I think that ultimately is something that we need to be doing to make sure we are 
you know, commercially pay is one aspect, one part of a package which has to include the proper evaluation and um, assessment of how people are performing. And I think that will push people into doing that better. Um, I'm No, completely agree. On the first one, motivation, obviously, public servants, I would argue particularly, oh, they'd have to be motivated by something else at the top, otherwise they wouldn't be there because they're getting paid tiny amounts compared to what they're getting paid in the private sector. Um, I guess the argument there would be that you'd, you'd expect there always to be a differential between the public and the private sector to reflect things like that, to, to reflect that some people just want to work in the public sector, the same as, you know, why, why do people go and work for charities? Why do people go and work in think tanks when they could do other things, for instance? Because I find my work interesting and there's a, a pay differential there. But, you know, it's that, that you should be able to account for that. So it shouldn't be no pay differential. We shouldn't pay exactly the same as we do in the private sector. But it should be much more flexible to, uh, to account for the, uh, the ways in which markets work. Markets set wages based on supply and demand not by someone sat in beers saying this is how much they should get paid, which I just don't really see is a sensible approach. Living wage um, and how it fits with this. Living wage, I would argue, is a good thing. And um, I don't really think it does fit with this particularly, uh, in, in the, no more than the minimum national minimum wage fits with it already, in that it's a wage floor above which you have negotiations. Uh, living wage would be a similar wage floor above which you have negotiations. Um, I think we should do more to make sure the living wage is put in place. I think alongside that we need to be careful to mitigate some of the increased costs to certain types of businesses that would <coughs> cause so we don't get a, an impact on employment, which there's actually a recent study from the USA which shows that uh, places where they've put in place a living wage actually has had a knock-on effect to employment. So just a way of trying to put in place minimum, uh, living wage, but with mitigation in, uh, of cost for the firms, basically, it's a good plan. Great. Thank you very much. It was really Thank interesting. You.